Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Now, be honest, how many of you, when you looked at your bulletin this morning and you saw the word deliverance, you hear the word deliverance, your, your first thought is the movie. You hear, it's okay, I did too, and uh, so I was reminded this week, thinking about this theme of God's deliverance, it's reminding of when he did that for me uh, on the river once, our first wedding anniversary, I surprised Polly by taking her kayaking. And uh, she had spent, grown up spending uh, 10, 10 years, summers, at an all-girls uh, boating camp in North Carolina, and she loved to kayak. Uh, and so when I asked the head of the outdoors club at Vanderbilt uh, where I should take her for our anniversary, he said, well, there's the Hiawassee, uh, it's a nice beginner's river, class one and two rapids, uh, or uh, there's the more advanced Akoe nearby, it's class three, even some class four rapids. Um, and I thought to myself, well, Polly's experienced and I'm athletic. You know, how hard can it really be? And within 15 seconds, I found out, uh, I climbed in the kayak immediately, flipped it over and nearly drowned before we even began. Couldn't get the skirt off. Um, so Polly begged to go home. I said, listen, we didn't drive three hours just to turn around and go home. So she uh, agreed to go down the river ahead of me and help find the safest route and guide me down. And, and as long as I would shout at her from behind as we were going through the rapids so she knew I was still upright and alive. Um, and so she didn't have to turn around and paddle back to, to save my life. It was not our most harmonious anniversary ever, but God did deliver me that day uh, on the river, and you better believe I was thanking him for it on the ride home. In Psalm 50, verse 15, God invites us to call upon me in your day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And so the purpose, according to the Bible, of God's deliverance, divine deliverance, is that he might get glory. Doxa is the Greek word, hence our word doxology. A hymn of praise to God. We'll come back to that. Well, this morning in, in Acts chapters 23 through 25, the Apostle Paul is going to face yet another day of trouble in his own tumultuous life. But as promised, God will deliver Paul not once, not twice, but five times in these two chapters, all for God's glory. And as we consider each of these five means of deliverance that God employs to save Paul here, I want us to apply each of them to our own lives as well with the aim of promoting our own praise, of deepening our own doxology this morning. So with that, let's pray uh, one more time. Go to the Lord and dive in. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. And speaking of guides, we thank you that your word is a guide through the the storms of life, 
the tumultuous river that is life, the rapids, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I thank you that you have not left us in the dark about how we are to live and more importantly about who you are and about your deliverance for us. And so this morning I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to see, to behold wondrous things from your word, to behold Jesus, salvation, a deliverance that has offered us only in Christ. Father, would you open a sinner's eyes to see their need for Jesus and his faithfulness to save them. Pray this in his name and for your glory. Amen. Well, Acts 23 through 25. By the way, we have Bibles also at the info bar. You can get up and go get one right now. We'd love to bless you with the gift of a Bible, God's Word. But uh, in these chapters, we find God delivering Paul. We find that God delivers us in five ways. So let's look at them. Number one, God uses community to deliver us. As we said, you've heard about this from Bill already this morning, promoting life groups this morning. It's appropriate that we would find this in Paul's own life story. We pick up his story where we left off last week. Paul is on trial in Jerusalem before the Roman proconsul Claudius Lysias, having been arrested for inciting a riot. Uh, when an angry Jewish mob assumed that Paul had defiled their temple by inviting his buddy Trophimus, a Gentile, into the court of Israelites. And so we pick up that story in verse 12, chapter 23, word of the Lord. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Not wasting any time this morning. They're coming for Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 of them who made this conspiracy, they went out to the chief priests and elders and said, we've strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we've killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you from his prison cell to the temple for this trial as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And when we're ready to kill him, uh, when, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near, we're going to ambush him. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So the centurion took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. By the way, Paul likely had been witnessing to the centurion and converted him to, to saving faith in Jesus. Otherwise, there's no reason a Roman soldier would have been taking orders from a Jewish prisoner. So that be a lesson to you. Pays to evangelize sometimes. The tribune uh, took the young nephew by the hand and going aside, he asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? If you guys want to silence your cell phones, that'd be great. Thank you. He took him by the hand, going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, 
who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, I told you a few weeks ago, this is the only relative of Paul's mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. Likely because the rest of his family, as devout Jews, had disowned Paul when he trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. Paul declared in Philippians 3.8, you may remember, uh, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, presumably including also his family. And yet, by God's providence here, there's one family member, this young nephew, who must have at least taken enough of a, of a, a curiosity and interest in his enigmatic, excommunicated Uncle Paul to get close enough to him that he not only uncovers this plot, but then he shares it with Paul and saves his life. This is, we don't talk about Bruno in real life. This is the deliverance of the misunderstood, estranged uncle. Not only does it pay to evangelize, it also pays to have family, to have friends, to have community. Paul will spend the next five years of his life in prison. He's going to spend two in Caesarea. We'll hear this morning. And then three more in Rome. Roman prison was not like prison today. If you didn't have loved ones to care for you, community, to meet your physical needs, food, clothing, medicine, you died. But we discover here that Paul wouldn't have even made it another five days. Forget five years. He wouldn't have made it a week without this young nephew. It means we wouldn't have his letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, to Philemon, Titus, First and Second Timothy. We wouldn't have the book of Acts. Most scholars think that Paul dictated Acts to Luke while he was in prison in Caesarea during the two years that we're going to hear about in Caesarea in prison in chapter 24. So we wouldn't have a third of our New Testament had this one little nephew not been looking out for crazy old Uncle Paul. God was constantly using those in Paul's life around him to save Paul's life. Just after his conversion in chapter 9, you remember Paul's disciples had to lower him down in a basket down the city wall in Damascus to avoid a first assassination attempt on his life. Then Paul fled to Jerusalem where he was saved by the brothers there from another plot. The church in Lystra in chapter 14 nursed his wounds after he was stoned. The church in Ephesus chapter 19 saved him from rioters there. The church in Corinth rescued Paul from a plot to kill him at sea in chapter 20. Time and time again, God used those around Paul to save his life to deliver him. How about you? As you hear Paul's story, as you hear Bill's story this morning, ask yourself, who has God brought into my life to save me? Dr. John Curlin delivered me on December 17th, 1984, and God has been using the folks around me to deliver me ever since. God used my parents, God knows how many times, to deliver me from danger, hunger, death, my first 18 years of life, God used my, my next-door neighbor, my youth pastor, to deliver me from hopelessness when my father left our home. God used friends in high school and college to deliver me from isolation, mistrust. God used my wife to deliver me from blaming God for my past, my problems. He used a former pastor to deliver me from hell, sharing the gospel with me, bringing me to saving faith in Christ. God has used... Christian counselors to deliver me from addiction, my kids to deliver me from selflessness, the church to deliver me from apathy, 
God is constantly using the people around me to deliver me, and I trust that the same has been true in your life as well, that we could go around if we had time, as Bill said, for everyone to get up in the baptistry. Get up here at the pulpit, share your story, pass the microphone around. I trust that we could hear story after story after story of the people that God has brought into your life at just the right time to help deliver you. So church, what is our rightful response to such divine deliverance? Doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We praise God for the blessing of community. Number two, sometimes God uses commands to deliver us. What in the world does that mean? Well, verse 23, we read, Then the tribune called, he commanded, two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. I, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, write greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Why? Why did he do it? Why did he deliver Paul? He says, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. So Lysias tells us he saved Paul because it was his duty under Roman law. It was the command of Caesar to, that governors protect Rome's citizens. He's following commands. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions about their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Again, this sense of civic responsibility to the law that caused Lysias to step in. In verse 30, when it was disclosed to me that there was, would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers, commanding them also to state before you what they have against him. It's the command of the law, due process for citizens. Verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, they protect Paul at Lysias' command. They took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, Felix, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province Paul was from, and when he learned that Paul was from Cilicia, he decided that's too far away to move the trial. He said, I'll give you a hearing here in Caesarea when your accusers arrive. And so he commanded him, there it is, again, commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. He was guarded, protected, delivered by command of the governor. Romans 13 reminds us that the governing authorities have been instituted by God to be his servants for our good. Society's good, our collective good. For our deliverance, because from the very beginning, our God has been a God of law and order, a God of commands. God commanded, let there be light, and thus he delivered the universe from darkness. God commanded Pharaoh, let my people go and thus delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Then he commanded his own people, you shall have no other gods but me, and he delivered them from worthless idolatry. Most importantly of all, when we failed to keep God's commands, God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And now, now, Acts 17.30 told us a few weeks back, 
God commands all people everywhere to repent. He doesn't just invite us. God commands us to repent, to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus for salvation, and you will be saved. That is God's command for you this morning. Friend, you, you need to hear this. If you want to obey God, the living God who will judge you one day, if you want to obey him this morning, hear his command. First John 3.23, this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Do that, and you can be delivered this morning. Delivered from spiritual darkness to light. Delivered from spiritual enslavement to freedom. Delivered from serving idols to worship the living God. You'll be delivered from death to life. New life in Christ can be yours this morning if you trust in Jesus. There are so many ways we could list that God uses commands to deliver us. Again, from the commands of the government, law officers, God delivers us from anarchy, from our own inevitable inherent depravity otherwise, to God's own commands which govern all of creation. Hebrews 11.3 declares that God upholds the universe by the word of his power, that God commands the sun to shine, God commands the planets to orbit, God commands gravity to hold us all here and keep us from drifting out into outer space. You realize the universe need not be this way. It is only this way because God commands it such for our good. And best of all, God commands us to repent and believe in Jesus for our eternal deliverance because he knows what's best for us. He knows how to deliver us. What is our rightful response to such deliverance? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Our rightful response is to praise God for the blessing of his commands. Number three, God uses a clear conscience to deliver us we're into chapter 24 now, where we read, verse 1, After five days, the high priest Ananias came down to Caesarea from Jerusalem with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. These Jewish leaders have hired the best cutthroat prosecutor in town to go after Paul, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had summoned he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. He's laying it on pretty thick for Felix. Best argument begins with the best flattery. Uh, side note, Felix was not excellent. History tells us he was a ruthless, inept, corrupt governor who failed to keep the peace in Judea, the Pax Romana. Verse 4, but to, to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's a triple insult, in case you missed it. He's a ringleader, a dangerous revolutionary of this sect. Christianity is nothing but a cult. 
And worst of all, they follow some dead Nazarene. Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of that redneck dump? Verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Notice, Tertullus doesn't bother to actually offer any evidence for us to support any of his allegations. Because there is none, it doesn't stop him from bringing three charges here. Personal charge, Paul's a plague. KJV says he's a pestilent fellow. A political charge, sedition, starting a legal new cults. Threaten the peace, Roman peace. And lastly, a political charge, doctrinal, uh, sorry, a doctrinal charge, profaning the temple, profaning the temple. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him, to Paul, to speak, Paul's turn now, Paul replied, now he's going to argue that all three of Tertullus's charges are bogus, here in verse 10, knowing that for many years... Governor Felix, you've been judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. Notice, no dishonest flattery. Paul is just happy, hopefully, to be receiving a fair trial. Verse 11 says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. In other words, even if I wanted to overthrow the temple and cause a riot, I haven't had enough time to, organize, to pull something like that off. But moreover, verse 12, he says, they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city, neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. No evidence. He says, but this I do confess to you, verse 14, that according to the way, remember that's the nickname for the church at this time, according to the way, which they call a sect, again, Rome is suspicious of these new religions. Paul's going to argue Christianity is not a new religion, but rather the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. He says, look, I worship the God of our fathers. I worship Yahweh too. I just happen to know his son, Jesus. He says, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. I just know that Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's our common hope, the Jews and the Christians, that this life is not all there is. There is an afterlife where we will stand before an almighty, holy, just God, and every right will be made wrong. Paul says, I've just gotten the foretaste of that resurrection in Christ's resurrection and being united with him in it through baptism. So. So Paul says this, verse 16, So I always take pains, here it is, to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, pause. Remember last week when they first arrested Paul in Jerusalem and he claimed, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. You remember how the high priest Ananias had Paul slapped in the face for it? Well, here Paul doubles down, and he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. How can Paul claim that? How can Paul honestly claim to have a clear conscience before a holy God? Ananias had him smacked because he's thinking, excuse me, Paul, I I'm the high priest here. 
I'm like the, the spokesman for the self-righteous Pharisees, and even I don't have a totally clear conscience before a, a holy God. Even I have to go in and offer sacrifices once a year for both my own sins as well as for the sins of the nation, the people, and the holy of holies. How could you, Paul, a defector, an apostate, possibly claim to have a clear conscience toward God? And unfortunately, Paul himself doesn't get a chance to defend his claim and share the gospel with them because Felix is going to interrupt him here just a few verses later, verse 22, and call the trial to a recess. But we know the answer, don't we? We know Paul's answer to that question, how he can have a clear conscience before God. It's Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as high priest, when Christ appeared, As a high priest, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls in the Old Testament could sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself without blemish to God, here it is, purify our consciences. He says, for by a single offering, Christ has now perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you believe that this morning? He's perfected you if you're in Christ? That when God looks at you now, he sees you not, only, not as you really are, as the, a sinful, marred, dirty conscience, but he sees you as clothed in all the righteousness of Christ, perfected in God's eyes for all time. He says, therefore, since we've been perfected, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we can actually stand before the throne of God now without crumbling up into a ball in our sin, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, here it is again, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It's a translation. Ananias is right. To claim that, that you have a clear conscience before a holy, perfect God based on your own merit, based on your own attempt to follow God's law perfectly. That is absurd, even blasphemous. But friends, Paul isn't appealing on his own righteousness here. He's rejoicing in the imputed righteousness of Christ Jesus, his Savior, his high priest, his once and for all time sacrifice, his mediator between a sinful Paul, unworthy Paul, and a holy, perfect God, sin had left a crimson stain. Only Jesus' blood could wash it white as snow. Sin had left nothing but guilt and shame and rightful condemnation. Only Jesus' blood can purify a dirty conscience. So I have to ask you this morning, do you have a clear conscience before a holy God? after what you stayed up late watching last night, after how you flipped out at your kids on the ride over this morning, after how many times your mind has wandered just in the last 45 minutes 
This is all just the last 12 hours I'm mentioning, and you were asleep for most of it. I'm just waiting for the Sunday. I, I, I think some of us were honest. We do kind of tune out, especially maybe tune out during the call to confession. It's 15 seconds of mandatory awkward silence every Sunday morning. I'm just waiting for the Sunday when someone interrupts Brian as he's trying to transition us to the assurance of pardon. Sorry, Pastor Brian, but 15 seconds isn't nearly long enough for me to confess all my sins from this past week. I haven't even covered this morning yet, so if I could have like 15 minutes, maybe 15 hours. Friends, how can we possibly have a clear conscience before a holy, perfect God? What can wash away my sin? Do you know? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole, make my conscience whole, cleansed, purified once again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Bill read Romans 8.1 for us already this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? Are you dressed in his righteousness? Have you died to your sin, repented, turned from your sin, and trusted in Jesus by faith for the forgiveness of all your sins, past, present, and future? If you haven't, I urge you again this morning, don't wait a moment longer. Do that this morning and you'll be saved. If you have, though, I ask you again, what is our rightful response to Christ's sacrifice for the cleansing of our consciences. You want to sing it with me this time? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Church, we praise him for the blessing of a clear conscience that your conscience has been cleansed by Jesus' blood. Number four. God even uses corruption to deliver us. Listen, God is really going to show off his redemptive power on this one because we're going to read of not one but two crooked governors that God uses in spite of their wickedness to deliver Paul here. Felix goes first, verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. The council saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, then I'll decide your case, Paul. Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody and have some liberty. None of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Talked about that. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, then I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with Paul. Four sins that Felix is guilty of, they are just in these five verses. Uh, first, inactivity. He says, Paul, listen, I'll decide your case later when Lysias can make his way down from Jerusalem, which apparently he never got around to for two years while Paul's rotting in prison. The fact of the matter is, Felix didn't want to make a call. 
In Paul's case, verse 22 makes it clear he had a rather accurate knowledge of the way. He had no excuse for not exonerating Paul. Felix knows that Christianity is a peaceful religion. He understood that they're not trying to cause up riots. The Jews are the ones responsible for that. And yet, he also knows that the Jews hold a lot of sway over the entire region. So he can't condemn a Roman citizen on no evidence, but he also can't let Paul off the hook without the Jews rioting all over again. And so he lets Paul rot in prison, inactivity, second sin, immorality. Verse 24 references Felix's wife, Drusilla. History tells us that Drusilla was actually Felix's third wife, and Felix had to convince her to leave her first husband to come marry him. So he's an adulterous homewrecker. And third, impenitence. Felix obviously had a fascination with Christian theology. He's already got a pretty accurate knowledge of the way. And yet in verse 24 here, he takes advantage of Paul's imprisonment to, to satisfy, to his, his, tickle his curiosity. He sends for Paul often and wants to hear him speak about faith in Christ. So isn't it interesting then, Paul's three-point sermon for Felix? Look at Paul's three-point sermon. It's not faith, hope, and love. It's not grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Is that the three-point sermon you'd preach if your neck was on the line and this is the guy who could let you off? Why'd he do it? His friends, Paul knew a gospel devoid of repentance is no gospel at all. Faith in Jesus without turning from your sin is no faith at all. Jesus himself said, unless you repent, you will perish, Luke 13, 3. Felix was impenitent. Felix had no interest in repentance. Had a lot of interest in the finer points of Christian doctrine and theology, like a lot of people in churches this morning. He had no interest in repentance. He wanted Jesus as a savior, maybe, cheap grace. He wasn't interested at all in Jesus as his Lord and actually dying to his sin to live for Christ instead. And unfortunately for Felix, Jesus isn't interested in merely being your get-out-of-hell-free card this morning. Jesus will be your Lord today, or he will one day be your judge, and there's not a third option. Those are your two, two choices. Jesus will be your Lord in this life. You'll surrender to him now and bend the, bend the knee willingly, joyfully now, or you do it involuntarily one day before you judge. Take your pick. Friends, don't be like Felix. A curious mind will not save you from hell. Only a changed heart will. Don't procrastinate on making the most important decision of your life. Felix says, whew, I don't know, Paul. I heard others talk about grace and mercy. I like that stuff. Could you come back later, maybe preach a sermon on that? I'll send for you later. Why don't you you kind of come up with some other sermons for me to hear later? So I don't don't know about all this righteousness and self-control and judgment stuff. Paul, go away. Let me think it over. Skip Heitzig says, atheism has killed its millions, but procrastination, its tens of millions. Most people don't hate God. They just figure they'll get around to dealing with him, getting right with him later, you know, when life settles down a little bit, when it's convenient. 
Friends, if that's you this morning, I urge you again, don't wait another moment. Don't leave here today without getting right with God, without repenting of your sins, surrendering your life to Jesus, and being saved. As Warren Wearsby warns, don't procrastinate yourself into hell. Felix's fourth sin, inactivity, immorality, impenitence, and finally just a general iniquitousness, uh, sinfulness. Felix was just corrupt all the way to his core. You think about a guy who, verse 26, would let Paul rot in prison for two years, waiting for him to, to pay him off a bribe. That's the real reason he lets him rot. He sees Paul, you know, even from prison, coordinating, still sort of getting words sent to him and, and raising funds for his needy churches all over the Roman world. And Felix is thinking, man, Christians are generous. They're givers. Maybe I can get in on some of this action. Where's my cut, Paul? And if Paul had been a little more morally flexible, like Felix, give Felix a little love offering, he probably would have been released from prison, but Paul is just too honest for his own good. Unlike Felix, who even after Nero fired him as governor in AD 60, Felix still left poor Paul in prison, verse 27, because he desired to do the Jews a favor. He knew, he knew it was the wrong thing to do, but it was the politically expedient thing to do if he's going to be sticking around the area. Felix's successor, Portius Festus, wasn't much better running short on time, so I'm going to skip over reading the whole passage uh, in verse 25, uh, chapter 25 now. But summary, the Jews ask Festus also to move Paul's trial back to Jerusalem from Caesarea. He's in prison. Say, move him back here so they can try and ambush him again. They're, they're bringing back the, the ambush plot. And like, Festus, and like Felix, Festus here tries to cooperate with them, verse 9, because it's politically expedient. We hear Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Hey, Paul, let's go to Jerusalem. That'll be fun. You're probably tired of Caesarea. Unfortunately for him, Paul doesn't fall for it. He replies, listen, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. No evidence. Two years now. No one's made a single legitimate argument for why I should be tried. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't even seek to escape death anymore. He says, but if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar, a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. What's the takeaway for us in all this? Simply, simply this, that God, our God, our incredible, all-powerful, all-loving, redemptive God can use even corruption to work his deliverance for us. Do you believe that? That God can use even the worst parts, the broken parts of your life, even your own sin, work his own deliverance through it. He proves this time and time again. All throughout his word, God uses cruel pharaohs. He uses conquering Assyrians, Babylonians, corrupt Roman governors to work, yes, discipline, but ultimately also deliverance for his people. Even the good characters in the Bible, 
had to be redeemed, delivered from themselves, from their own sinful corruption. Abraham doubted God and slept with Hagar. Moses lost his temper, disobeyed God. David lusted, and, and he stole Uriah's wife and murdered Uriah. Paul himself murdered Christians for a living before God delivered him from himself. Friends, if you're looking for the ultimate proof of God's faithfulness to take even the, the worst of this world and its corruption and in a way that only he can use it for an even more glorious good than you need look no further than the cross where God showed us that he uses even the greatest evil in all of human history the murder of his own son to accomplish the greatest good in all of history the pardon and eternal adoption of all who would simply come to Jesus in faith. This is our God. So I ask you again, church, what is our rightful response to such divine deliverance to a God who can use even corruption as evil as the cross to ransom, redeem, and rescue us? Can we sing it all together again? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We praise God for his redemptive power over sin and corruption. Lastly, number five, God uses the curtains to deliver us. I couldn't break the alliteration on point five, so we're going with curtains. According to thesaurus.com, that is a euphemism for death. And so God uses even death to deliver us. Paul appeals to Caesar in verse 11, and in verse 12 here, Festus answers him, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And you and I know how the story ends, don't we? Paul will be in prison another three years in Rome, ultimately before he's beheaded by the emperor Nero around the year AD 64. Friends, I want you to listen to the words of the apostle Paul that he penned from that Roman jail cell before he died. He said, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said, if I make it out of here, that's great, because I get to go on living for Christ, preaching the gospel, saving the lost, discipling the faithful, planting more churches. But if I die, Paul said, that's even better, because I get to go home and be with Jesus finally. What's the only thing more impressive than a God who can use sin and corruption to deliver us. It's a God who can use even death to do it. The ultimate enemy, death. You know that you need not fear death this morning. The scariest, most uncertain, most final of all of life's troubles the thing that most of the world is desperately trying to avoid or at least delay or convince themselves, you know, won't ever happen to them. You don't have to fear it this morning. It can instead, paradoxically, bring you hope and confidence, even joyful anticipation. You can long for death, like Paul, if you know the one who conquered death. Do you know him this morning? Do you know Jesus? you do, then church, I invite you one last time to join me. What is our rightful response to a God who works deliverance for us through community, 
through commands, through a clear conscience, through even corruption, even through the curtains, through death. What is our rightful response? Shall we end with the entire chorus this time? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son.